This is Chris Reynolds and welcome to the Entrepreneur House podcast. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for established entrepreneurs creating events and retreats all over the world. If you're ready to take your business to the next level with other successful entrepreneurs, be sure to apply at theentrepreneurhouse.com. And now on to today's episode. On this episode, we are joined by one of the world's former top 20 poker champions and productivity expert, Chris Sparks. Chris is a master at analyzing situations and using strategy to pull the odds in his favor. This is how he did so well as a professional poker player and he uses these methods as an entrepreneur. Today Chris and I dive into his story as a poker champion, how he maintains discipline in business and in poker, how Chris uses methodologies and strategies to stay on top of his game, and how neuroscience plays a role in this. It's an exciting episode and one you won't want to miss. And with that, let's welcome Chris to the show. Well, how you doing Chris? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for asking. And you're calling in from New York? That's right. Yeah, Brooklyn to be exact. Been uh, been here full time about, let's say, a year and a half. Well, we're going to jump right into it. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you became the productivity master that you are today? (laughs) I I don't know if I would call myself a master. I think what makes me a good coach is that I'm still very much in the process of learning. I think once you become an expert, it comes with a curse. You lose perspective. So productivity is still something that is very much a day-to-day struggle for me. And uh, I think my efforts to improve and experiments on myself kind of allow me to be a better, more empathetic coach. As far as I got here, I, I mean, I think like most people listening to this, I've taken the most kind of divergent, etch-a-sketch type <laughs> path possible. Uh, I'll, I'll give you kind of the short version of my, my story and we can dive in any deeper. I'm sure this is gonna kind of bring up some questions. So when I was in college, my, my dream and aspiration was to make TV commercials. So I was super involved in all the usual college organizations, uh, President Marketing Association, I sold, the advertising in my newspaper, did internships at some Fortune 500s, and actually I did a reality TV show my senior year called Quad Squads, which was sponsored by Ford. And oh, nice. through some through some opportune circumstances, when uh, the CEO of Ford's advertising agency walked through, we were doing uh, doing a shoot. I got offered a full-time job um, with Ford up in Detroit. But um, if you know your recent history, 2008 (laughs) wasn't wasn't the best year for the auto industry. Mm -hmm. And the week after I moved up to Detroit, uh, they went on a hiring freeze. So I found myself up in Detroit, not knowing anyone, nothing to do. But luckily, I had had this nice little side hobby when I was in college of playing poker, where uh, at this time... Poker was just everywhere. It was on ESPN. It was what we did on Friday, Saturday nights for fun. It was, you just, if you were a male in college at this point, you just could not avoid it. I remember and that. <laughs> yeah, I found I, I really had a knack for the game. And after all of my classes and involvement in college, I would stay up all night playing poker tournaments and found I had a, a knack for it. And when this, uh, I, I, kind of paid off my my college tuition using poker uh, during school, but I never really had the time to explore it fully. So when I found myself in Detroit with nothing else to do and no job, I just decided to dive in on poker full time to kind of see what could come of it if I put all of my time and attention in this one basket. And I, I kind of slowly rose to the ranks from making a decent living on it to about six months in, I was making what my annual salary at Ford would have been every month. Wow. So they eventually called me up and asked, hey, okay, well, the hiring freeze is over. You can, you can come aboard now. And at that point, it just doesn't make economic sense to go to do a full job, to do this full-time job at a big corporation. I had kind of gotten a taste of full autonomy of being my own boss and just doing something that I really loved for a living. And that grew from there. I actually, similar to, I think a lot of listeners are on the dynamite circle, uh, I posted on this poker forum called 2 plus 2, and all of my best friends became 
people from this poker forum who I'd never actually met in real life. And we, I, I organized uh, 20 of us for my 21st birthday. We all went out to Vegas and uh, shared a suite. And after this like nice, long, debaucherous weekend together, it was, okay, how do we continue this? Certainly, you know, I don't want to go back to Detroit where I'm just sitting in my apartment, not even going outside playing poker all day. How can we you know, take what happened this weekend and continue the magic. And I ended up creating, uh, similar to what you're doing, like basically a poker entrepreneur house out in LA where we split a mansion and we're just playing poker all day and then kind of masterminding and going out all night. And it was that year and a half that my poker career kind of took off. And I went from being, you know, a very good, solid player to being ranked top 20 in the world. Wow. Um, and I, yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, I, thinking back, it's it's really crazy how that, that whole story came about. Uh, and I was able to build some uh, side businesses on that, I think, which were a big part of my growth and success. Uh, I started consulting other players. I worked with um, over 100 clients who were kind of one level below me on the poker ladder. And I started investing in players as well, allowing them to play higher limits than they would be able to do on their own and kind of helping them and mentoring them up along the way. And yeah, it was before I knew it, I was just a full-time poker player and very successful. Uh, the bottom fell out. This was, uh, this was 2011. The event we call Black Friday, kind of after the, the stock collapse, uh, all the poker sites in the U.S. just shut down, and mm. all the money we had online got seized. Oh. So over, overnight, you know, I'm at this point, I'm at the top of my, kind of the pinnacle of my poker career, and poker is no longer viable as a profession, and I'm kind of forced to figure out what's next. Uh, I'll, I'll, stop, I'll stop there for dramatic effect. Yeah, that's good. And this is 2011, right? When when everything kind of seized up. Yeah, this, this okay. is 2011. Um, no longer able to play poker. Um, you know, the future future is very. Uh, who knows what's in the cards at this point? Uh, I try to replicate what we had in LA and get some friends um, to London to mm -hmm. recreate another poker house there. And through, man, a long story that I wish I had time for, uh, I, I basically get denied re-entry into London. And so all of my <laughs> stuff is stranded in London except for me. And I, I kind of reevaluate my path where I had chosen London because it was a nice base to travel. Mm -hmm. And it had always been my dream to do this big romantic backpacking trip where for me, I, I've been fortunate to do quite a bit of travel for poker, but I always spent most of my time in the casino because I was traveling for a poker tournament, and that was it was a work trip, right? right. It was a business, which anyone who does does business trips knows is not the same. Right. Uh, so I just took this opportunity to kind of do the trip I always wanted. So that that first version was just is kind of a we'll call it a trial run. I did I did three months going through Europe, mm -hmm. and then um, six months later I did the full deal. I spent uh, that eighteen months I mentioned earlier visiting uh, fifty more countries. Uh, towards the tail end, I got really interested in this thing we're all familiar with called entrepreneurship. And being the naive guy I was, wanted to be be part of the fun but didn't really have a ton to add value-wise. So I started, I started kind of talking to other entrepreneurs, finding out what their pain points were, what these points of leverage were, and settled on doing some analytics consulting. So I did that, did that remotely for a few months, and I ended up moving to here to New York for the first time because my learning curve just wasn't steep enough. I wasn't learning fast enough. I wanted to throw myself into the fire. So I, I ended up going on full time with this startup called Cools. It's a you know fashion tech startup here in New York uh, to kind of speed up my learning. Mm -hmm. And I ended up, um, after about four months, I ended up managing all of their marketing. But working full time in an office, having to report the same time every day, it felt just like I had kind of escaped from Ford, and I really craved that autonomy and ownership that I had once had. Mm. And that kind of led me to 
uh, start this uh, productivity coaching business. I realized that on my own, my work habits were complete garbage. Um, I just... <laughs> I just lacked, without that kind of structure of going into the office and working, I, I lacked the I lacked the self-motivation, at least I thought at the time, to just get things done. And realizing from my, my previous conversations with entrepreneurs, um, this, was, this was an ongoing problem, that all entrepreneurs kind of suffered from this imposter syndrome, where on the outside they need to, it's like a duck where furiously they're paddling underwater, but over the water, they have to kind of give this visage of complete calm that everything is going amazing, that the next raise is right around the corner. Right. And the reality behind the scenes is that there was a lot of struggle and there was there was a lot of challenge even just to get the simplest things done. Mm -hmm. So uh, I started helping out my friends just for fun. Uh, it's kind of like a side hobby. And I was talking to one of my friends one day over tea and kind of thinking that maybe this is something I could do as like a full-time job. At this point, I was, I was doing my, my version of an eight-year-old MBA where I was just taking a bunch of random classes here in, in New York, but kind of just generally unfocused and looking for something to do. And he said, well, okay, I'll be your first client. And I was completely taken off guard because I, I wasn't trying to pitch him at all. It wasn't even, it was just kind of something I was throwing out there as an idea. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay. Like, and as soon as like somebody has given you their money, everything changes. Like I went from hobby to business and I had to kind of draw up what this would actually mean. Like what, what, what is the service that I'm actually offering? And yeah, it's kind of, that was back in, uh, back in June and it's been building, building up from there. So yeah, these days I work, uh, work, uh, one-on-one -on -one with entrepreneurs, uh, the branding is around productivity, but it's really around um, personal effectiveness. Hmm. How can you how can you make more progress on your most important work? How can you figure out what your priorities are, make progress on your goals? And at the end of the day, just be satisfied with what you get done. Okay, so let's go back to the poker playing days before we dive into some productivity hacks. Because I have some questions for you, because that sounds like an incredible experience, ma'am. Now, were you ranked top 20 in the world for online or offline or both uh the online poker so that's uh I, I specialized in online cash games okay. so i started off i started off in tournaments but tournaments are very much feast or famine uh the variance in those is is really absurd whereas cash games is much more of like a working man consisting consistent income so, yeah, I, I've played quite a bit live as well. As I mentioned, you know, I would travel to tournaments, mostly for the tax deductions. And I'd spend uh, two months of the year in Vegas playing the World Series of Poker. Mm -hmm. But online just always fit my skill set much better. Um, it's much more statistically based. Uh, it allows me to be really, you know, analytical. I could... And most notably, I could play multiple games at a time. At um, my peak, I was playing 30 poker games at once, wow. which basically comes out to a decision every second. Uh, not something you can do in person. This had to be so automated and so programmed into your mind where you can just make those decisions like this, right? Yeah. I, the way I like to think about it is caching my intuition. So okay. if you think about, if you think about working memory, uh, we can only hold about four bits of information at a time. Okay. What we can do is we can compress more information within that bit. So to, so to what an outsider might look like, you know, a minority report, just furious action is really, I'm chunking these, uh, actions into known scenarios where my course of action is very clear. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of thinking that's happening within that one second decision, but a lot of it is fairly automated, as you said, because I've seen these situations before and it's just pattern matching. Obviously, when they took down all the sites in the United States, there was other sites abroad. How come you just didn't focus your time on those and keep playing? I think it comes down to two aspects. So first, just on a economic side, uh, the U.S. represented about 70% of the online market at the time. Okay. So the way poker works as an ecosystem is that because uh, the site is taking out a rake, a cost of doing business, it constantly needs new players coming in to make up that shortfall. Mm. So 
the U.S. representing such a large part of that portion of that market that um, collapsed overnight. All of the good players from the U.S. continued to play, and all of the bad players stopped playing. Mm. So overnight, players who were making you know absurd amounts an hour were making one tenth that just because the competition got so much fiercer overnight. There was less games running for players to play, so the tougher, so the, tougher uh, the games became tougher as uh, more good players were kind of consolidated within those. Um, the other part is on a personal level. Uh, I think you reach a certain point in any pursuit where you just have to ask yourself the question, is this what I want to do the rest of my life? Like, do I want my obituary to read famous, <laughs> world-renowned poker player? And I realized that for me, the answer was no, that I wanted to do something non-zero-sum, more substantial, kind of make a dent in the universe, and that this current path of playing poker for a living wasn't going to lead there. So I took it as kind of an, an opportunity to make a clean break and kind of do, I like to call it like a, like a Deion Sanders, like make a somewhat early retirement to kind of get out in front of the next wave. And they took the sites down in the United States because of, for tax reasons, right? They couldn't collect the taxes on them or was there more? It's, it's a really, it's a really interesting case study. So, uh, from a business point of view, uh, there was this, there was this law passed in 2006 called the wire act that it was very, it was very vague and it said no, basically no online betting, but didn't really carve out any specifics. So, um, the publicly traded sites, you know, lawyers said, okay, this is too risky. We're going to have to pull out. But the private traded sites said, wow, we can just move in and capture the whole market. And because it's such a legal gray area. So they did. And overnight, these two sites, Poker Stars and Full Tilt, basically captured the entire U.S. market. Um, and it, it kind of five years, they operated without impun impunity until uh, it's, they start, uh, the, gov the law starts getting enforced and uh, cash outs to players start getting seized. And they're having to go use like shadier and shadier payment processors mm. to get money from players onto the site and to get money from the site back to the players to the point that they're spending 40 cents on every dollar just getting money, right? So it, the, the business quickly becomes unprofitable at that point because their entire margin is going to money laundering at this point. Uh, it kind of goes off the rails when they decide, okay, well, rather than spending all this money to get around the banks, why don't we just buy a bank? So they made very large, quote-unquote, loans to banks in exchange for having a free payment processing, which the, the government looked at as kind of overt bank fraud. And that kind of led to the, uh, the bottom falling out and the government seizing all of their money in uh, April 2011. Uh, yeah, so I mean, super interesting case study. Uh, you know, constraints driving some uh, some interesting market forces. Uh, I think I think a lot of the the lobbying and kind of internal forces driving this uh, the seizure of money was probably tax related, right? A lot of uh, the the Las Vegas casinos saw online gaming as uh, incorrectly as competition rather than a bringer of revenue and customers. Mm -hmm. So they were kind of driving a lot of this action behind the scenes. Now, are there any current gaming or casino online games these days in the United States, or are they all just completely banned? So like a few other notable things legalization-wise in the U.S., it's happening on a state-by-state -state basis. Okay. So I, um, I'm not... I'm not 100% confident in this, but as to my knowledge right now, it's only legal in, I think, Delaware, New Jersey, and what is, there's one more. Um, oh, I, there, I, there's three states right now. I think there's likely going to be more in the future. California is the big one that everyone's eyeing just because of the size of the market. Mm -hmm. But again, just due to ecosystem, right, where before – you had a worldwide market. I know you're in Brazil right now. I could play at a table against someone from Brazil, someone from China, someone from Canada, Australia, etc. Whereas now, if you're in the States, you can only play against other players from Delaware. And Delaware is not a big enough ecosystem to kind of create this critical mass needed for a sustainable site.
Hmm, that makes sense. Okay. And where have you seen other online poker sites grow or, or flourish in the, the rest of the world? Are they doing it in Europe or in Asia as much as they were doing it in the United States or what's going on abroad? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, even towards the end of the life cycle, let's talk 2009, 2010, uh, the poker sites started moving all of their focus towards emerging markets, um, particularly particularly areas like China and uh, and South America, where um, that, that's, that's really the where they started uh, concentrating all their marketing dollars. But the, the trend has kind of continued of this fragmentation of the marketplace, where if you look at Europe, for example, um, I'll use PokerStars as an example because they're still the largest site. Um, you have PokerStars Spain, where you play against other players from Spain. You have mm. PokerStars Italy. You have PokerStars France. So in this, in this quest to kind of get um, national taxation, uh, it's, it's strictly regulated by the government, so the, the laws va- vary from country to country, and you can only play against other players from that country. And, and I mean, as we can see, we've seen many times in the past, prohibition doesn't work. Um, you're seeing this trend kind of play out once again with the daily fantasy sports market. There's just like this insatiable desire to gamble from home. So it's not going the, the, it's not going away anytime soon. It's just a matter of what form it takes. Wow, that's an incredible story, man. And so you got to the point where you were actually teaching or coaching other poker players. Yeah, I think I think coaching was a huge part of my poker success. Uh, it's it's a model that I've you know replicated a couple times. You know, when I did the the marketing consulting to learn how to do online marketing, mm-hmm. and now again with the the productivity coaching to uh, level up my own productivity and kind of create this. Uh, laboratory for personal effectiveness. In poker, when I was coaching, the players who I was coaching, they're they're not just people learning how to play. These are players who are also among the best in the world, but are just one step behind where I was. So maybe they're kind of at the level that I was six months prior. So I was learning almost as much from my students as I was teaching them just because everyone has their own unique approach to the game and you can learn a lot just by watching others play. Uh, I feel, I feel like observation is really powerful because you have this tacit knowledge that's really hard to access. And these, these skills that people kind of undervalue because they're just, they're just so used to them. Things that, things that they don't even consider are abnormal or unusual or, uh, worth noting. So, through this coaching, I was able to access all of these other unique strategies that players had, and it allowed me to codify my own knowledge, where when we have this one-second window to make a decision, all of this knowledge I have about poker must be extremely easily accessible. And by kind of repeating the same concepts and making them into a more digestible form from day to day, I made them much more accessible in my own play. It's incredible strategy, man. I love it. How many people were you coaching? Uh, I coached, I think, 110 in total, plus uh, a couple dozen that I was coaching as part of uh, the investment arrangement. And so it, my my daily schedule usually looks like, you know, roll out of bed at noon, do some semblance of a morning routine. <laughs> I'd have um, I'd have my first coaching session from one to two thirty. I'd have a second coaching session from 3 to 4.30. Uh, I'd then go to the gym, work out with a personal trainer. And then after eating dinner, I was kind of on the clock poker-wise from usually like 8 p.m. until 5 or 6 a.m. Uh, because the most profitable time to play is when people come back home from the bars. So I was trying to <laughs> reach kind of uh, you know peak energy level right around midnight, 1 a.m. And were you coaching one person at a time or did you do group coaching? Always one person at a time. I found this similarly with uh, the productivity coaching. We're all kind of unique snowflakes in a way. And the the scalable aspect is, okay, in poker and in productivity, like here are the best practices. Like here's what works for me. Here's what you probably should be doing. What is not scalable is, you probably already know this to some sense. Why aren't you doing it now? 
like what this creative creative problem solving aspect like how can we do a deep dive into your current habits your current routines your current day-to-day and figure out these are the things you think you should be doing why why aren't you doing them how can we remove these obstacles to doing what you want to do and that's just something that i've never found to scale very well so i think that there's this kind of dichotomy you can do as a business is how can i create something that's extremely systematized that is kind of universal principles or you can go extremely curated very high end directed one to one that like is very client focused and i've always found the most value comes in these areas that just do not scale and that's where i try to put my focus have you done any personal development work i know you read a lot i'm a personal development fiend uh, <laughs> okay. it's it's hard to kind of create a container around growth because i i think of myself and uh if, if I'm not growing, I'm dying sense, right? So right. every day is a quest of personal development is like, how can I go to bed knowing one thing that I didn't know when I woke up? How can I get 1% closer to my long-term goals? Uh, so I think, I mean, it's really corny, but I think of my whole life is kind of this personal development quest to, uh, to both get to my, myself to a point that I can, you know, have maximum impact right. and to kind of distill the lessons from that so I can hopefully teach those to others. Um, I, I said I mentioned my, you know, I've, I've always been a voracious reader, um, particularly when I was traveling. I was reading 60 books a year, a um, wow. couple thousand articles, mostly personal development related. Uh, I've since kind of realized that intake was never my constraining resource. My, my limit was always around actionability. So I've really tried to scale that back and put more wood behind fewer arrows, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give I'll give you examples. You know, when I first moved to New York, my, my plan was to be, you know, taking my eight-year-old MBA. So I scheduled out my days. Okay, I'm going to be learning this from 9 to 10, this from, say, I'm, I'm studying Spanish from 9 to 10, and I'm doing writing from 10 to 11, and I'm going to go to a painting class from 12 to 1, and then I'm going to take karate from 1 to 2. And realizing that all of this skill development without a place to apply it was just kind of masturbation. It was just <laughs> developing skills without anywhere to put them. So I really tried to to try everything once and take the things that work and really add value and expand upon them. Um, an area that I'd highly, highly recommend to all the listeners uh, that from that experiment that I've really taken on is uh, improv comedy. Oh, yeah. I think the, the mental models from there uh, just really extend to a lot of areas of life on how you can be more creative and get out of your own way. How can you be someone in conversation that people enjoy talking to that, you know, not only beyond being funny, but just being empathetic and interesting and a good listener. Um, Most people don't realize that improv is all about paying attention to your partner and listening to what they're telling you. Mm -hmm. Um, That pursuit has has been one of the most highest value things that I've done. And I I look at it as a big part of personal development is just getting on stage metaphorically or in the real sense and doing things that are slightly out of your comfort zone. Absolutely. And I can be a testament to that. I've done a bit of improv. What I've learned from improv is that it's one of those arts that you learn. And when you do learn it, you become, you learn and you gain so much and you become a better person in so many different aspects of your life, not just communication, but psychology and listening and speaking and performing and creativity and all these things you're learning at once. And improv is just something you practice on a regular basis that you're gaining all these talents at once, which is amazing. Have you ever done any jujitsu, Chris? Uh, a bit. I, I uh, in my experimentation phase, I, I did it for a month, but uh, I didn't stick with it. Oh, yeah. Do you? Uh, what's what are your thoughts? So that's one of the reasons I do jujitsu now is because in just learning one art, I'm learning several different talents at the same time. So not only do you learn the art of self-defense, but you also learn it's a constant teacher and a constant lesson on leverage, on how you use your leverage to beat your opponent's leverage, even if they're much bigger than you. Plus, you're also 
gaining, you're doing probably one of the best workouts that I've ever done. You're, you're in a forced mm-hmm. position where if you don't struggle and if you don't work multiple muscles uh, at the same time, then you'll, again, you'll lose. And so you can go to the gym. Me personally, I can go to the gym and I can work it out on my own, even with an accountability partner, but I won't work out nearly as hard as if, if I have an opponent attacking me, trying to beat me. And so it's a forced workout and then also flexibility. So a lot of the things that you learn in yoga, you do those flexibility moves in jujitsu. You have to be incredibly strong and flexible. Then cardio, not only are you working your muscles in all these different positions to fight your opponent, you're gaining cardio strength and mental strength and humility because you're continually getting your ass whooped over and over and over. So you're learning that lesson over and then connection with other people. And so when I travel, I always do jujitsu and I'm meeting locals that I have common interest with instead of just going and meeting entrepreneurs. So very similar thing. What I was getting at is improv is uh, one of the arts that I want to do for months and months and months and maybe even years after I've kind of kicked off my jujitsu kick. That's well said. That (laughs) totally lines up with my experience. I love the analogy you made of, you know, compound activity, kind of like you have a compound lift that you're, you're able to improve varying aspects of yourself with the same activity. And I love this idea of having an opponent because mm-hmm. having something on the line forces you to recruit those resources you didn't know you had. And I think a lot of personal development is just expansion of self, expanding the circle of things that you could do. And uh, this this identity of being someone who has abilities beyond which you've even seen um, mm-hmm. has so many benefits. Um, so yeah, it's awesome. It make, make, really makes me want to take it back up again. Yeah, very cool, man. Have you ever read the book Bringing Down the House? I have. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the better ones. Yeah. I, I I like his writing style. One of my favorite books, actually. For the listeners, Bringing Down the House is about the blackjack team from MIT that went out to Vegas and apparently won millions from Vegas by counting cards. And so your story kind of reminds me of that a little bit, but not quite as so intense. And I actually spent probably six months studying card counting because I was like gung-ho on, I'm going to be a card counter and go to these casinos and win some money. It's so, funny, after, after that book came out, I probably have met a hundred different people who claim to be part of that MIT blackjack team, right? As if, <laughs> as if the people who are really making those levels of money would want to out themselves and make yeah. themselves public. Yeah. And I think... One of the big things that extends from, you know, playing high stakes blackjack in a casino is that one, people, people focus on the glamorous aspects of card counting, but in essence, your, your, your margin is very small, your edge over the casino. So when the deck is in your favor, you maybe are a 51-49 favorite, so which means that you're losing almost half the time, right? It's basically a coin flip on any given day and that all of your profit comes from having extreme leverage when you have these small edges in your favor. But that also means that you're having huge swings in profit. So you need to have a massive bankroll to withstand that. And the vast majority of humanity just does not have that discipline to stick with the strategy, to stick with the plan when luck is going against them because it will. And this applies to live poker. The hardest part of, and I think you you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, the hardest part of card counting isn't keeping the count. It's keeping the count but still looking natural, still looking like you're having fun, enjoying yourself, not being obviously (laughs) like trying too hard because then you're going to get shut down by the casino. Mm -hmm. They're they're private enterprise. They can ask you to leave at any time. So you have it's in live poker. You have to be creating this really convivial atmosphere, like befriending the players, making jokes, not not adding stress, not obviously trying too hard. But internally, you're like that duck. You're making all of these calculations. You're, you're analyzing everything that happens at the table. But you have to, it's this extra level of effort to make it look effortless. And that's really the difficult part. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but you, you have to have such an incredible mental and emotional discipline to maintain that type of environment when you're playing poker. Is that correct? Yeah, it's something that I always say is the best players in poker are those who make the most money. 
right? It's not who has the most skill. It's not who makes the craziest bluff or the most dare. At the end of the day, you keep score by how much money you make. And that means that the most skilled players aren't the best poker players. And for me, I would say that I was never among the most skilled, but I was always among the most disciplined. And Mm -hmm. it's not how you... It's not how good your A game is. It's what percentage of the time are you playing that A game that really matters. And I think that that applies to um, applies to business entrepreneurship as well. Is yeah. like having this process orientation where it's not um, how do your decisions turn out, but like what percentage of your decisions are optimal given the information you know at the time. And being able to kind of maintain this high standard of excellence even when the chips are down. Chris, so what are some ways that you maintain that discipline? Well, I think the easiest way is having something at stake. Uh, usually having large amounts of money on the line is, uh, is a good way to stay focused. Um, in my current day-to-day, uh, I, I like to use forcing functions. So, I Say think that again, Chris. A lot of for- forcing so function? A, forcing, a, a forcing function, as in... Let's call it another word for it would be pre-commitment. So okay. creating a lot of productivity comes around creating constraints around what you don't want to do and creating forcing functions of what you want to do, how to make what you want to do more natural. So an example would be, um, let's say you're making a presentation to some VC investors in a month. The, the tendency for all those who have been through college is the day before the presentation to stay up all night doing it. Mm-hmm. The, the smart thing is to set up some checkpoints along the way to force yourself to make progress, um, where a lot of creativity comes from kind of letting ideas marinate over time. You need to have these feedback cycles to kind of like take multiple shots at it because every time you do it, it will get better. So if I was doing this presentation, what I would do is I would kind of set up mock presentations either with lesser investors or just friends who I really respect and give that presentation on a weekly basis. So every time I give the presentation, I see uh, obvious points of uh, improvement and allows me to kind of focus my future efforts. Um, like I'll use like a, a deliberate practice metaphor there where you're, you're focusing your efforts on the points of high, highest leverage, the, the weakest parts of your presentation. So... Um, yeah, so the answer, answering your question, um, in essence, one, create some stakes, right? The hardest, the number one challenge we face as entrepreneurs is just getting out of bed in the morning. So how can you create this <laughs> internal coherence that what your day-to-day matches up with your long-term goals, right? That your projects you're working on are going to make progress on what you're, you want your obituary to say. If you if what you do day-to-day has no relation to your lifetime goals, it's clear you're going to get unmotivated. Right. So having, having something at stake, so even when you're doing something like doing your taxes or doing business outreach, you can tie that and say, okay, I realize that this isn't the most fun, but it's worth it. I understand the cost because it's going to get me to where I want to be. And then the second is, creating those forcing functions so forcing yourself to um perform at that higher level like your jujitsu example is like how can you create the equivalent of an opponent or a accountability partner who's going to lead you to perform at a level that you didn't know you could perform on your own kind of recruiting those resources you didn't know you had so let's dive into well we've talked about a lot well let's do this do you have any books that you recommend? And, and I would say like two or three of your favorite personal books and then two or three of your favorite books on productivity. Oh man, you're just, you're sending my, uh, you're sending my computer. It's, it's like it's <laughs> crashing right now. It's, it's, I'm searching, I'm searching this, this database trying to pick the right ones. Uh, it's just such a difficult question with books. Um, okay. So, I will say I, I post uh, I post all the books I read on my website. So it's uh, if you just go to sparksvc.com, there's a reading list there that I rank all the books by. I put a, like a rating one to ten on them. Mm-hmm. So that, that would be where I would send everyone first, just because with book recommendations, uh, it's so personal. It needs to be relevant 
to what's going on in your life right now. I think where I went wrong with reading was reading all these things that like, oh, okay, this might be helpful to know someday, but didn't have any connection to what I was doing at the moment. So I think like any book recommendation needs to be timely. I love getting recommendations. So if you want to message me, I'd be like with kind of what you're looking for, I'd be happy to give a personal one. Uh, that being said, as far as productivity books, um, the the old time favorite uh, that you know is timeless. I think the Lindy effect of the how long a book will be around is basically proportional to how long it has been around. So the go to in productivity is always getting things done. I think uh, it's pretty timeless, and if you can implement the things you find in that book, you're ninety percent of the way there. Um, I think that I think the challenge that I work with players is, you know, you know what to do. How can you implement the things from that book? Uh, two from recent years that have really made an impression on me and that I refer a lot of my clients to. The first one is just called the One Thing. So, the biggest thing as an entrepreneur is you have all these things you could be doing. You have this massive buffet of tasks you could be working on, but there's a power law there. The most important task that you could be working on right now is more important than all the rest of the tasks combined. And what the one thing does is really kind of drive this idea home of how can you figure out what your most important thing to do is right now and focus your efforts on that. And that's what I do with a lot of my clients is figuring out what your biggest priority is long term and day to day and how can you remove all your obstacles to working on that. So figuring out what the one thing is and spending your time on the one thing. The other one, which is making a lot of waves um, in the productivity circles, uh, somewhat controversial. Uh, it's called uh, Deep Work by Cal Newport. And the, the main thesis there is that majority of our work day-to-day -day is shallow and very low impact. Things like email, um, anything that's reactive, like working off of other people's priorities. And that these kind of hamming problems, making a dent in the universe by doing great work, it all comes from focusing for long periods of time on a single task. So deep work is strategies for creating the space to um, make lots of progress on your most important problem. So what he kind of advocates is setting aside you know, a whole day or a part of your day to do one thing and just focus on that. Step away from your desk, walk around outside to like let the ideas germinate, but to not, to eliminate all of this task switching that we're used to doing and just build your muscle of focusing on one thing at once for longer periods of time. Um, there's kind of like the dichotomy in the, in the productivity world where you have, okay, you have an ideal situation, all of your work would be deep work. You know, you'd be just maker all day and no manager, no admin, no emails, none of that. Um, the realistic scenario is how can you be anti-fragile where like interruptions, distractions are in inevitable. How can you ramp up quicker and maximize the amount of time that you're in flow once you get there? Um, man, that's probably a, a huge information dump, but, uh, <laughs> in essence, the three I would recommend in starting with, uh, deep work, uh, what was the, uh, the one thing and, uh, getting things done. If you've read all three of those and you're looking for more, uh, let me know. Once you've kind of passed the, the universal best practices where I find the most value is looking at top performers in other fields, mm -hmm. um, areas like you mentioned, uh, you know, the martial arts or chefs or, um, let's see, manufacturing areas that are very focused on process and kind of taking the best ideas and principles from those fields and applying them to productivity. But before you get to that point, you have to kind of uh, adopt all the best practices first. Nice, man. Incredible. One other thing I wanted to touch on before we finish the podcast, some of this applies and overlaps to neuroscience. And I know you've studied a bit of it in your day and it relates to playing poker and, and productivity and all of this. I just would like it if you could share some of your thoughts about neuroscience. Neuroscience is, is a really fascinating field because at the end of the day, we're, we're a, our whole experience of reality is just a product of electrical impulses uh, firing in the brain, right? Mm -hmm. So 
we're all of our moods, all of our feelings are kind of chemical imbalances, right? One chemical being added at the expense of another. Um, that's a very pseudoscience-y way of putting it, but essentially everything arises from the brain. So by understanding the brain, we can understand humanity because that's where it all begins. And I keep a close eye on developments in neuroscience. I think I think it's a, it's a field that is kind of poised for a breakthrough as um, we see these kind of exponential improvements of technology, uh, ways of imaging the brain, ways of studying individual neurons and kind of tagging those to behavior. It's still very much a black box. Uh, if you look at fields like artificial intelligence and artificial neural networks, which are loosely based on the systems we have in the brain, you have inputs, then big black box, we don't know what happens, output. And that's still kind of the way the brain is today. And we're still kind of scratching the surface of understanding um, what's going on there. So I think, I think it's a field that's really poised for as a breakthrough um, as we hit kind of the next paradigm in terms of technology. And then it really starts to get interesting when you talk about um, you know, genetic modification, brain implants, um, you know, optimizing your chemical levels, uh, being able to, you know, electrically stimuli different parts of your brain to activate certain modules that are conducive to the type of type of work you're doing. Um, all this stuff is kind of on the cutting edge. It is not understood. But I do think once you reach a, uh, once you reach a certain level in your productivity, whether personally or as a society, that's we're going to start to see more development on this front um, of kind of the next tier of being, you know, closer to our human ideal, you know, the Ubermensch. Um, man, I, I, I get so, uh, yeah, I get so into this stuff. Uh, I will say that with neuroscience, it's really tricky to separate the science from the hype. Pretty much any popular article you read about neuroscience is either wrong or misleading you mm -hmm. know all the articles you see okay new neuroscience study shows that um let's say we're oh man i can't even make up a good one but pretty much anyone that you'll you'll see in the news or on you know popular science sites uh is to be avoided they're misleading they're they're extrapolating from a single case with very small sample size I think if you really want to see what's happening in neuroscience, you need to go to the source and read the scientific papers. Um, because it, it like, like real news, it just gets distilled and it's a big game of telephone by the time it reaches you in the popular science. Uh, that being said, I mean, I love it. I love nerding out about it. I think it's really exciting. And I think it's a big part of why the next five to 10 years is going to be so inherently unpredictable because one huge breakthrough in this field could completely change the course of human history. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. Chris, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners before we sign off? Oh man. Uh, <laughs> there's so, there's so much I could share. If you could take one thing from my, my huge info dump on productivity, it's figure out what it is that gets you out of bed in the morning, right? Having a compelling reason that's larger than yourself that causes you to evaluate the things that are not amazing in your life, uh, the day-to-day -day minutia, the challenges, sales, all that things, and decide, okay, this is worth it because my overall larger goal is worth it. Um, I, love, I love the idea that the ultimate productivity hack is internal coherence, that your day-to-day -day actions match your longer term goals, having coherence. Mm. And a good way of doing that is just chasing what excites you. Like uh, this idea of you're in a garage, like all the real innovation is happening on the weekends in your kind of 20% time. Chase what excites you and try to find some form of exchange because presumably there's things that you're an expert in that you really undervalue that people place a high value upon. And as far as your day-to-day -day productivity, knowing what your number one priority is at any given time. And if you don't know what your number one priority is, that's your number one priority to figure it out. And 
most of your work is just wasted. It's not, it's not going to really move the business forward. So your goal is to get really clear on your priorities and get rid of all the obstacles. Chris, you've mentioned a couple times in the show about the listeners or people getting clear on what they want written on their tombstone. And I'm just curious, and I'm sure the listeners would like to hear too, what do you want written on your tombstone? What first came to mind there was Chris Sparks, Advancer of Humanity. Uh, I don't know what form that takes. Uh, I think two aspects of my the kind of the thread that kind of ties all of my efforts together are one understanding what makes us human and two understanding how we can uh we can operate at peak and what is the intersection there um the way i've said it to other people is you know raising the average sanity level of humanity uh, so I'd like to think that I make a small pimple in the universe by either advancing um, our understanding of ourselves or by popularizing and synthesizing the ideas of other people and making them into an actionable form. Um, and I, I hope that's kind of the, the path that my life takes. As far as the specifics, I mean, that's the fun part. Chris, if there's any listeners out there that want to reach out and inquire about coaching or contacting you, where can they do that at? Sure, yeah. I mean, as you guys can tell, I love talking about all this stuff. So happy to continue the conversation. Please reach out if anything I mentioned today struck a chord or if you had any further questions, I'm happy to. Uh, a lot of this was extremely compressed, and I'm happy to point you to some further resources if that's of interest. My personal site is sparksvc.com, S-P-A-R-K-S-V-C.com. I'm currently uh, relaunching as a you know nice professional site that is kind of all the rage these days, but um, that site will definitely redirect to it once it's launched. You can also find me on all the various social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. My handle is Sparks Remarks, easy to remember. Um, and yeah, feel free to uh, reach out. I'd love to uh, continue the conversation. And we'll put all those links in the show notes. Um, Chris, we want to give you a big thank you for coming on the show, man. You have a wealth of information that you have given us, and I really, really appreciate it. I love talking to productivity hackers. So thank you, Chris, very much. Thank you, listeners, for coming on to the show one more time. And that's a wrap for today. We'll see you guys on the next episode. Bye, everybody. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for established entrepreneurs. Imagine spending an extended period of time with other successful entrepreneurs working together and growing your business. Day to day, you interact with other driven and smart business people. Spending an extended period of time around them alters your business and your mentality around business. Goals are set, business grows, new partnerships develop, greater profit margins are achieved, the productivity skyrockets for those that are in the Entrepreneur House, and you get to have an incredible adventure while doing it. This year, we have three different events, a three-day productivity weekend in different cities all around the world, a two-week all-inclusive retreat for entrepreneurs with six-figure businesses. This will be full of workshops, masterminds, and adventure. Then a four-week event in Chiang Mai, Thailand for established entrepreneurs, also full of workshops, masterminds, advisors, and fun weekend social events. Be sure to check out the details at theentrepreneurhouse.com as soon as possible. These events will fill up fast. For those of you that are interested in have some questions, be sure to contact us through theentrepreneurhouse.com forward slash contact. We will respond as soon as possible. For now, saludos from somewhere in the world.